So, new series today that we're going to do called What's That? What's That? So, if you'd never seen this before, you might be wondering what this is. And even at that distance, you might be thinking, is this a rock? No, it's not a rock. It's a potato. So, potatoes are indigenous to our part of the world, that when people got on boats from Europe to kill people and take their gold um, (laughs) here in the New World. They'd never seen potatoes before they got here. And the stories of what it was like for the Europeans when they first got to the Americas were just astounding. They just couldn't believe what they saw. In North America, they saw animals, deer and elk that were bigger than anything they had seen in Europe. They saw people that were bigger than anything they saw in Europe. At the time, the average Native American was about 6'2", and really fit. And the average European man was about 5'4", was missing half his teeth, and he smelled bad. (laughs) So they thought they were just in this extraordinary world. And if you know, in, in the lower part of the Americas, with the Aztecs and the Incas, they came into these cities that were bigger and greater than anything they had seen in Europe. And they were just absolutely astounded when they saw that. Well, I'm going to talk about potatoes here in a minute, but imagine what that would have felt like, or imagine the time where you were most disoriented, where everything was completely new. Um, I see Ovi nodding his head. You've immigrated from Romania to here, and I imagine coming to the U.S. was a little disorienting when you first got here. You know, that's a huge move, to immigrate from one country where the language is different, the people are different. And some of us have made those kinds of moves. Some of us just can remember deeply back to the first day of kindergarten and how disorienting that was and how troubling that was. So I've been thinking about this, because what we're going to talk about over the next couple weeks is how God works in that newness, how God works in the places where we haven't experienced things, in the places that are unfamiliar in the places that are unexpected, and even in ways that we think are impossible to coin a, coin a word and stick with the alliteration that we're trying to do here. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about. And, and in reading about this for a while, I, people that study how people react to change and new things said that when people encounter things that are really unfamiliar, they either try to interpret them in terms of what's fantastic, to just assume everything is so unfamiliar that all of my old categories go away, or they try to fit these new things into a familiar category. So again, remember what the Americas looked like to these Europeans that were arriving here. Cities bigger than anything they'd seen, gold everywhere, huge animals, and the people were gigantic and strong to the extent that they thought In fact, this is an illustration of what some of the Europeans thought the first Americans looked like. They were so beside themselves that when they looked at the people that were there when they got off the boats, this is what they remembered them looking like because they were so astounded, they were so overwhelmed that their memories just slotted it into the, this is completely over the top and fantastic. The other thing that they did was that they tried to decide 
what things were in terms of familiar categories. So for instance, if you know Spanish, you know that this is called a papa. Now the reason this is called a papa is because the Incas who cultivated these things and started eating them, when the Spaniards were talking to them, they said, what's that? And the Incas said, papa. And so the Spaniards thought, I guess they know, so we'll call it a papa. But what's fascinating is as this thing spread across Europe, it got different names. And you could see people encountering the newness of the potato in various ways. So the Spanish speakers stuck with the idea that it was called a papa. The French speakers decided to call it a pomme de la terre, something, a, a fruit that comes out of the ground. Well, because that's what it is. It doesn't come out of a tree comes out of the ground. So that was a nice descriptive thing. We're not going to go with what the Incas said. What do they know? We're Europeans. We obviously know. But we're going to call it that. We English speakers decided to call it the potato. Now, potato comes from the word patate, which was the name actually for yams or sweet potatoes. But English people, knowing better than everybody else, decided potato, sweet potato, it's all the same. We'll just call it all potato. So that's why we call these potatoes. The Germans call them Kartoffel or Erdapfel. So Erdapfel is just the German way of saying Pomme de la Terre, a fruit that comes out of the ground. But curiously, Kartoffel is the Germans trying to say the Italian word Tartufo, which is the word for, um, uh-oh, this is a key point. I've got to get this right. Truffle, thank you. It's there. I just had to find it. Yeah, it's the tartufo is the, the Italian word for truffle. And so the Italians decided when this showed up in Italy, we're not even going to call it a new name. Truffles come out of the ground. These things come out of the ground. We're going to call them all truffles. And then the Germans decided to just call them that. So that's kartoffel is a German trying to say tartufo. So the point of all this, besides this is going, when you have burgers and fries today, you are going to dominate the lunch discussion. Okay? Just, people are going to thank you so much. So you won't have to talk about anything else. Just talking about the derivation of what we call potatoes is going gonna, is gonna to do it. But here's the thing. Notice the way that as Europeans dealt with this completely new thing, some of them listened and just went along with it. But they really tried to jam it into their pre-existing categories. Rather than coming up with a new way to think about this, they just said, oh, it's like this, so that must be what it is. The reason I make this point is that if you are really a follower of Jesus, not just somebody that comes here, and this is great, but if you're going to jump in with both feet and say, Lord, change my life. I give it to you. Remake me in the way that you want. You talk about being a new creation. Let's go with that that if God is going to be at work in your life, you are and you will encounter new things. That you will encounter God most of all, not in the fantastic and not in the familiar, but in the new. And it's our ability to just kind of roll with what's unfamiliar and what's new will often determine how much of what God wants to give us, we're going to be able to receive. How much of the life that he has for us, we're going to be able to live. Again, this is, this is one of my favorite verses. If, if you can kind of 
um, size up the gospel, it's this in one verse, that if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. And so that's why we're going to be talking over the next few weeks about exactly that, about how we can find God in what's unfamiliar, in what's unexpected, and even in what's impossible. And so we're going to see over the coming weeks how that works. So today what we're going to focus on is just learning to roll with and see how God is at work in what's unfamiliar. Now, this is something that's not easy for me. I mean, I like new things, but I kind of don't. You had this where there's an artist, you really like their stuff, and they, and they put out a new a set of MP3s, I guess you call it now. Um, they put out a new set of MP3s, and you like the past one, and then the new one is new, and you're disappointed because it's not exactly like the one you wanted before. You know, we're kind of wired to like what we like and experience what we've experienced. I, I like knowing where I'm going before I go somewhere. I don't like the unexpected if I'm driving somewhere to just wow, I didn't know that was going to be there. I didn't know that was going to happen. I kind of figure it's my job by the time I roll down the end of my driveway to know where I'm going and how I'm going to get there and how it's going to work out. But as I was thinking about this and and, and thinking about this series, it was one of the ways the Lord kind of dealt with me is that I'm not very open to the unexpected anywhere. I like to be the guy who knows what's coming. I like to be the guy who knows what's up. And when truly new and unexpected things happen, all you can do is just marvel and step back and wonder. You're not in control anymore. And I, I like being in control. And so that's why I'm kind of excited about what's happening over the next couple of weeks. This is as much me talking to myself as hopefully talking to you guys. And so there's a great story in the book of Exodus that shows our ancestors Israel, our mothers and fathers in the faith, dealing with a situation where something completely unfamiliar happened to them along the way. And just as a little parenthesis, it's important to think of them in those terms. When we read through the Old Testament, a lot of times it's a history of our ancestors in the faith, the people of Israel, kind of failing, and failing quite a bit. And there is a tendency for us as readers to kind of unconsciously read these stories kind of alongside the Lord. So as the Lord's talking to them and saying, hey, what's the deal, guys? We're alongside the Lord saying, yeah, what's the deal, guys? Except I think we make a huge mistake if that's how we're reading these stories. We're those guys. We're the Israelites. If the Bible's going to talk to us in the way that I think God wants to use it to talk to us, we need to see ourselves in these stories, not as Moses, not as the Lord, but as the Israelites who are trying to figure it out. And this is a circumstance where God is doing something that is really unfamiliar. Fortunately for us, we have Legos for this. So, here's what's happening. Six weeks after the Israelites have left Egypt, if you know the story, they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And the Lord has just delivered them from slavery in Egypt through a series of huge miracles. They've seen fantastic stuff. Okay? They've seen fantastic things. And they're probably already thinking that's how the Lord works. So they're now six weeks in, and they're in the wilderness of sin. 
That's not sin in the way that we use the world. It means something else in Hebrew. But really what it means is they are way out in the wilderness. Moreover, six weeks in, they're starting to run out of food. And they're starting to freak out. And so what happens is they confront Moses. And they start to make all kinds of accusations at them. But I just want to show you just how real and obvious this is. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're in a completely unfamiliar circumstance. And they're nervous. Just as as a by the way, when we're hungry, don't we tend to be grouchy? When we're thirsty, don't we tend to be that way? If we haven't slept... Don't you tend to be that way? Somebody I read the other day said, 80% of what makes people sad, if you just have something to eat, have something to drink, and take a nap, you're probably going to be okay. And if you, I mean, this isn't in the Bible, but this is, this is truth. This is real, right? So, you know, it's like, oh, man, I can't stand my coworker. Have you had lunch? You have lunch? They're going to look better to you. You know, if you're, if you're really bummed out, it's like, oh, what's happening with the direction of my life? How much water have you drank today? Ask yourself that. Or it's like, oh, man, I don't know if I can face this person again. How much did you sleep last night? And here's a situation where all of these things are piling up for the Israelites. Moreover, they are completely at the end of their rope. They've had six weeks of freedom. These are people who have been slaves for 400 years. Their parents, their grandparents, lots of greats, as many greats as you can imagine, have been slaves in Egypt. And now they're living on their own in the middle, literally the middle of nowhere with no means of support, and their bags and their skins are emptying out. This is what they say. They come up to Moses, and and you can kind of see the sarcasm that happens when you get really angry. They say, you know, oh man, if we'd only died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So you can see, they need something to eat. (laughs) They're really struggling right now. They're struggling so much that they're doing what people do all the time. They're even misremembering their past in Egypt. They didn't eat pots of meat. They didn't have all that they could want to eat. Meat was a luxury item. There was no way slaves, foreign slaves in Egypt were eating meat. So they even have idealized their familiar past. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. But clearly they are at the end of their rope. And it's, and it's kind of understandable. I mean, this is completely unfamiliar territory. And they are frightened. They don't know where the food's going to come from. Because they're in the middle of the desert. And other than catching a few lizards, um, there's just nothing out there. But the way that they look back on it, I think, is saying something really key. And this is something in how we are wired as people, and it helps to see this in our ancestors, is that you will always miss what's familiar, even if it was bad. A new thing, any kind of change, at least initially, will feel bad. I I got a new computer about six months ago. I got it, I was really stoked, and it sat in the box for a month. The reason was, I was in a really stressful time, and I knew, I was self-aware enough that I knew even the really good switch of moving to a computer that was faster and more efficient and all of that, 
it was still going to be different and it was going to feel different than my old computer did. And I just knew I didn't have the emotional reserves to deal with a much better computer at that time. And that, that sounds a little crazy, but that is how we experience new things. And we will always miss what's familiar, even if it's bad. There was a point where I got to coach um, Little League. And uh, some of the little guys had an idiosyncratic way of hitting. And they weren't doing it terribly well. And I remember this one little guy, I think his name was Jason. A third of the boys on the team were named Jason, so that's probably who it was. <laughs> but I'm trying to work with him. His grip was bad, and he thought, I'm going to hold the bat down here. And, you know, by the time the pitch came and he got his hands up here and, and his grip was bad, the ball was long gone. And I was doing everything I could to try to convince him. And he just, it was too unfamiliar. The right grip and the right stance just felt wrong to him. And, and, he's, and I was just like, can you just do it this way? And he says, and he kept sticking with his old way, and he said, but I like hitting this way. And it was all I could do to not say to him, but the point is, Jason, you're not hitting this way, okay? And you need to change this. So this, this is one of my achievements in life, is I didn't say that to him. <laughs> but even the right thing feels wrong at the start. And so this is, this is part of how it's hard to find God in what's unfamiliar. When the Lord wants to do a new thing in our life, that new thing is going to feel awkward. That new thing is going to feel weird. Um, when I was teaching kids to start out of starting blocks and track, to do it correctly just feels weird and wrong. And these are trivial things, hitting a baseball, running out of starting blocks. Some of you guys, I know enough of your stories to know that you've made really significant changes where there were habits and patterns in your lives that with God's grace and help and your own courage, you've put those behind you. And I know every person who's made that kind of change talks about those first few weeks are horrible, that doing the right thing, doing the good thing, never feels right at the beginning. And the reason is, is because we will always miss what's familiar. We're just, it's just sort of wired into us. The, the Bible talks about this in a number of places, but one place that it talks about this is Romans 7, which is kind of long, complicated, and, and rather repetitive discussion in Romans 7. But this one sentence kind of gets at it, where he says, look, here's how it works. He says, I don't understand what I do, for what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. There's just something in the way that we break, in the way that we're broken. It's the starting point that all of us, that the wrong thing, the destructive thing always feels easier, and the right thing just won't feel right for quite a while. So that's our starting point, and that's where the Israelites are stuck what they're looking back, even a past of slavery, and maybe even just dying in Egypt because Egypt was familiar, looks better to them than the present that they're in right now. So the Lord has an answer for them, which is really cool. So the Lord shows up. Um, the Lord doesn't actually show up in the story, but, you know, he's, he's there on the left in the white in the story. And the Lord says to the Israelites, it's, it's a lot easier to represent it this way when you're doing a visual thing. The Lord says, look, here's what I'm going to do. 
I am going to rain down food on you guys. Now, as soon as they heard that, they were probably thinking, because again, when we're in the unfamiliar, or when, we, when we're dealing with unfamiliar things, we either want to find it in the familiar or the fantastic. I'm certain that what they thought when the Lord said, I'm going to do this, is that there was going to be a loud lightning crash and a boom, and then suddenly there would be tables laid out like a caterer right in front of them, or something like that. They thought, boom, that's what's going to happen. Because if the Lord is going to provide food, because what they'd seen before was the Lord turning the Nile into blood and frogs showing up everywhere and blotting out the sun and all kinds of amazing things in the plagues of Egypt. And so it was reasonable for them to think, the Lord's going to do that. He's gonna, if the Lord's going to work, it must be stupendously, amazingly miraculous. Well, instead, what the story tells us, what the text tells us in Exodus 16 is that that night, when the Lord said he was going to feed them, a dew settled down. There was a mist, and then like a dew settled down on the ground. And then when it evaporated, there was like a a powdery, flaky kind of thing that the people were able to combine together and eat. They said that it it tasted sort of like coriander seed, which is like cilantro, and um, honey cakes. So sort of that sweet and sour thing, sort of like Thai food. So they were a little ahead of the... It was sort of like that, a little ahead of the curve in terms of Thai food being cool. But it was something they had never seen before. It wasn't, any, it wasn't like any food they had ever seen. It wasn't provided in any way that they had ever seen. And so their response was to say, what's that? Actually, in Hebrew, the way that you say, what's that, is you say, mana. Ma is what and na is that. And if you know the story, this is what they ended up calling it. Manna, ma-na, is what's that? Because they didn't know. The people go out and they ate it, but they, they see it and they begin to say, what's that? I think the fact that they chose to call it manna to enshrine this what's that is telling us something, that they're starting to get it at least a little bit, or at least they did down the road. Because what they're getting a hold of is the idea that if God is going to do something good in your life, it's going to be new. That God, when, as we just sang before I got up here, that God makes beautiful things. He makes beautiful things out of dust. Dust is not beautiful, right? It's just, I was moving magazines that had sat for a while yesterday, and there's dust there. I got to get that out of there. That's not a beautiful thing. And so when God does something good, it's almost always going to be something new. Another way to think about this is to think about it in this way, that the Lord is a creator and not a manager. Now, here's why this is hard to get a hold of. I can't create things. I can't make things. I can't create things out of nothing like the Lord has. Everything that's in my power and the way that I understand power is to take things that already exist and either fix parts of them that are broken or improve them, or use them in the correct way. You know, and, and for a lot of our lives, it is tremendously empowering. Have you ever had that moment where you're using a tool in the wrong way, and somebody shows you how to do it in the right way, and it's suddenly like, oh man, this is great. You feel like you've just discovered fire or something like that. You know, we've had that experience, and because of that, again, when God works, we understand him often in terms of what we're familiar with. 
we kind of assume that that's how God's going to work in our lives. That if God is going to create a new and good and beautiful thing, it's going to be by God managing the existing things in our life and tweaking them. Maybe taking a little bit here, adding a little bit here, combining these things in new ways. But that's not the biblical story. God doesn't manage existing resources. He was, he is, and he will be a creator. And so what God wants to do most in our lives is to create something new in the empty spaces that we have. So in a very small way, that's what he was doing with the Israelites. He wasn't taking, you know, it wasn't multiplying fishes and loaves of taking something that was existing and multiplying it. He was making manna, the food, the bread that they would eat for nearly a generation, literally out of nothing. So when the Lord creates, it's neither fantastic, it wasn't a lightning bolt and suddenly a catered meal, nor was it the Lord taking something that already existed. But it's the Lord in a slow, subtle Um, accessible way deciding to make something completely new. And so, friends, hold on to that idea that what God wants to do in your life is to not get you back to something that you once had. It's not to get you something that somebody else has, but it's to do something completely new in your life that's exactly right for you. The people loved this manna, but because they were going to experience it through their expectations. When you see something new, you're nervous, right? They are still nervous. This is the food, so who knows about tomorrow? So Moses gave the people instruction. He says, here's what you're supposed to do. Because this manna was supposed to connect them better to the Lord, not to separate them. So he said, here's the deal. You guys go out, and every night, the manna is going to come at night, and I want you guys to go out during the day and collect it and pick it up. I only pick up enough for one day. If you pick out for two days, wondering if it's going to be there tomorrow, it won't be, okay? Something bad will happen. So you need to trust me on this. Go out and pick it up. Every day there will be just enough for you. And so the Israelites did this. They went out and they each picked up, they each picked up the manna and they brought it all back together in one place. And they put it all together and amazingly, you know, there were a few people that were probably a little reluctant, and they didn't pick enough. And there were a few people who were like, well, he didn't say take twice as much, but I just took a little bit extra just to be sure. Amazingly, the story tells us that when they put it all together, they were each supposed to get a homer, which was like a small bushel basket of manna, um, or like a bucket size for each person. They were supposed to get a homer, and it was exactly that. There was exactly the right amount for every person. So I think what the Lord is trying to show them there is, look, your efforts don't really matter here. It's me doing it. It's you receiving. It's, it's me doing it for you. And then Moses warned them again. He says, look, don't keep any of this for tomorrow. This is all about trusting God. This is not about handling this ourselves. This is not about handling the stuff in the way that you used to. You know, if you're a slave and you get a little bit of food, you're going to hold on to it because you don't know where your food's going to come from next. But these were no longer slaves. These were sons and daughters of the king of the universe, and were they going to trust him 
that the food that was there today is going to be there tomorrow. Well, not everybody did, because people being people, not everybody did. And so the story tells us that their saved manna that was supposed to be for the next day, when they opened up the box, it was like all moldy and full of worms and all kinds of other yucky things along the way. So you could see what the Lord was trying to do here. This isn't a fantastic bolt of lightning. They're still gathering the food, so it's still kind of like getting food, but it's like no food they've ever seen before. That manna was right in the sweet spot between the fantastic and the familiar, which is where we find God wanting to work in our lives. So this goes on for the first week, and this happens five nights. And when they get to the sixth night, part of the rhythm of Israel's life is on the seventh day, they were supposed to have a Sabbath. Well, seventh means Sabbath. But they were to have a day where they didn't do any work. That was part of how God laid out for the Israelites what their life was going to be like. And so the Lord tells them, okay, on this day, you get to collect double. I will send down twice as much stuff, twice as much manna. You guys collect it, and there'll be enough for you the next day. And so they do that, and most of the people can roll with this pretty well, and it works out fine. But not all of them. Some of them get to the seventh day, the Saturday, the Sabbath. They go out, they go to look for the manna, and it's not there. And it wasn't there. So what do we see from this? And this is where the story ends. You know, it's not a big traumatic climax. And, it, and what, the, what the story goes on to tell, it just tells us this summary statement. And so the Israelites ate manna every day for the next 40 years. As long as they were in the wilderness, the Lord fed them with manna. It just became routine. It became a regular thing. But that regular thing that the Lord did, this good, tasty, tie-tasting thing that the Lord wanted them to have along the way, the only way that they could get it if, is if they were willing to be in that kind of empty space between what they were familiar with. They didn't insist that God feed them in a way that was familiar. Nor did they insist that the Lord do something that was really miraculous, that looked really spiritual. But that something that was just simple as dew coming down every night was the main source of the food that they had for an entire generation. And I think what that's telling us is the key thing if we're going to be people that are ready to grab on to how God wants to work in the unfamiliar is that it's not about our trying. It's about our willing to trust the Lord. You know, we've, we've hit on this theme a number of times um, over the last number of months, and we're going to hit on it again in these couple weeks. It is hardwired into us that when we face something hard that's not right, is that what do we tell ourselves? Try harder. Try harder. Sometimes we have more sophisticated ways of talking about that. Oh, if I'd just handled this situation better, or if I'd not made that choice, or if I'd made this better choice, or if these people weren't screwing me, but we think it's all circumstantial or it's all on us. And it's not. It's not about trying. It's not about circumstances. It's about trusting. It's about being willing to embrace that empty space between the familiar and the fantastic and allowing God to fill it with what we need which will always be something new and usually something unfamiliar. So creating again is something that is neither fantastic nor is it familiar, but it's just right. 
So what does this look like if we're going to live this out? How do we, I mean, it's a great idea, but what is this going to look like in our, in our lives along the way? So as I was thinking about this and praying about it, two things came to me. One is, I mean, these are not terribly surprising things, but it's, are we going to allow the Lord, trust the Lord enough to do something new in our relationships? And will we be willing to trust the Lord enough to be doing something new and unfamiliar between us, between us and the Lord? And again, understand what I mean by new. It is something that's really unexpected, something you have not experienced before. You know, most of the time when we want something new, it's because it's something we've already seen, you know? When you guys were, this is an old person thing, but fellow old people like me, do you remember looking at catalogs? You know, kids, catalogs were like paper things that would come (laughs) in the mail. You know, the catalogs would come, and you'd look at those things and think, man, and, and they would set what you thought was going to happen. And you would set your hopes on them. You would see things and you would set your hopes on them. And we kind of intuitively create catalogs and how we interact with people as well along the way. But these things that I think the Lord is really wanting to do are not in any catalog. That the thing that he wants to do for you and in your relationships and in your relationship with him is so unique to you that it doesn't exist yet. There is no design for it until you're ready for it. And so here's, here's, what, here's one way to make this real, is think of somebody in your life that you see on some regular basis that you have kind of a hard time with. You know, that, that there's something about them that, really talk about, pe- not people that are dangerous to you or emotionally dangerous to you, but people that you find annoying. Most of us have at least one of those. Maybe it's the person you see in the mirror in the morning is the primary one. But there's, most of us have somebody in our life that we find annoying. So notice what happens with people that we find annoying is that we go into every new time we see them. Don't you go in kind of prepared for whatever that annoying thing is that they do? Um, We have an extended family member who talks in very predictable, self-centered ways. And so I used to get through this at family events by trying to anticipate what he was going to say, which wasn't very nice, kind of mean on my part. But I realized that it wasn't just with him. We, We tend to do this with most people along the way. It's like, oh, I know him. I know what he does. I know her. I kind of know her, how she talks. I know kind of how she gets at this. And when we talk to people, we are just, especially if it's somebody that we find a little annoying or a little troubling, we don't let them be new. We don't let them occupy any kind of new space. We experience everything that they're about to say in terms of what we already know. And some of this is to get used to that. But what I want to suggest to you is to give this a try, to come into some relationship with somebody that you find hard to take and come into it unarmed. Come into it, don't, the normal ways that you prepare for them and get ready for them, 
to create an empty space in that space where you have your expectations, your past experiences, what you, what you think is gonna happen with that person. And just leave that empty. And let them be somebody new. Now, it might change them. It probably won't change them. They're probably gonna be who they've been. But it will change you. And the reason I, I, I'm suggesting this, as much as that's probably what we ought to do with people anyway, because we're all changing, we're all dynamic, and if people judged us by who we were two years ago, we probably wouldn't like that very much. But aside from that, of what it does in the relationship, I think what it does is it sharpens our ability. If you can do that, it's gonna sharpen your ability to do the next thing that I'm suggesting. And that is to allow the Lord to come into some empty space in your life. That's probably gonna be some place where you've failed some place where you've been broken, some place where somebody else broke you. And instead of just trying harder, instead of just assuming that the Lord is going to do some over-the-top thing and poof, everything will be different, you know, instead of the familiar or the fantastic, ask the Lord to do something new, something creative, something unexpected, so that as you look at that part of your heart, at that part of your life, that when the Lord begins to work, your response is not going to be, oh, that's what I thought it was going to be. But it's going to be, what's that? I've not seen this before. This is even better than I can imagine it to be. 